Welcome to Holy Cow, a Cubs podcast. I'm your host, Sean Holland. Our guest today is Brendan Miller of Cubs Insider and the Cubs Related podcast. Uh, you can follow him on Twitter at Cubs Related, so that works. Uh, we talked about a lot of stuff, Nico Horner in his uh, great debut, uh, about the Cubs, you know, long-term injury concerns, which they've had all these nagging injuries, but... You know, ironically, after we talked about uh, Chris Bryant's cortisone ejection, he hit two home runs in the game that night. Of course, the Cubs also lost that game in the 10th inning, so that plays into another theme we talked about, which is just the wildly inconsistent play by the uh, Cubs of late. Uh, We talked about a couple other things, Uh, Joe Madden's in-game strategy, and, uh, you know, we should mention that, too, that uh, Christian Yelich broke his kneecap and is out for the season, which is just, you know, I say we we don't like the Brewers on the stance of this podcast is anti-Brewer, but you still, you do not want to see a great player like that get hurt. So that's a big blow for the Brewers, which might shake up the race, which is very close. But other than that, we just have a long conversation and uh, try to figure out the Cubs. So here is Brendan. Brendan, uh, welcome back to Holy Cow, a Cubs podcast. It's always good to have you on. Thank you, Sean. Always a pleasure to come back on. All right, so we were going to go into this uh, podcast, and it was not going to be fun. I was fully <laughs> anticipating a very, you know, dour, the Brewers won 5-7 against the Cubs. Yuck. But then a funny thing happened last night. A Mr. Nico Horner, uh, previously of the Stanford Cardinal, Nico. Yes. Made his debut for the Cubs, and wow, it was quite a debut. So I'll ask you, since you have not recorded a podcast since Nico came up, I'll ask you for what are your thoughts on Nico? Nico is unbelievable, Sean. The thing that stands out the most for me is just his pure athleticism. So... The Cubs, as you and I know, have been searching for a leadoff hitter, searching for a guy who makes a lot of contact, a lot of good contact, and has the ability to run the base as well. Well, Nico probably can do all of that. 22 years old, showcased exceptional speed on the base path, scored on a passed ball from third base, had a triple in his second career hits, and he was all over the field defensively at shortstop, making plays to his left, making plays to his right. Uh, exceptional footwork on that spin around throw. I think for a major league debut, that was probably the best effort you could ask for, especially from a guy who was prepping for the Arizona Fall League in a few weeks now. Yeah, it was actually an amazing story that he was literally on the couch with his uh, mom and sister when the phone rang, and it was, you know, um, Jason McLeod saying, oh, by the way, you might want to hold off going to the Arizona Fall League (laughs) because we need you for the Cubs. Yeah, I mean, what a story is that? Yeah, it's it's kind of 
emblematic of his attitude, I think, too, because his response was, all right, let's do this. Like, usually, and it sounded as if Jason McLeod uh, was hinting that guys, you know, they lose their minds when they hear that call. But for Nico, it was different. It was more subdued. Like, yeah, I expect this call. I'm going to go out there and do what I know that I can do. And it follows suit with what Joe Madden was saying about Nico, about having him having that type of self-confidence, not in like uh, an arrogant or cocky way, but just someone who exudes confidence. And that that was good to see. Yeah, and I don't want to toot my own horn too much, but I was just, it was mostly joking. Um, on Sunday night, I went, well, they might, they might as well call up Nico Horner and save the season. And obviously, I didn't <laughs> think they were going to do that. But, you know, what do you think of the move to call him up? Do you like it or are you... It seems like you like it, but... Yeah, I mean, it's surprising. You know, Corey and I, Corey Friedman, my Cubs-related podcast co-host, we, we were talking to Brian Smith of Bleacher Nation at the trade deadline, or just before the trade deadline around the All-Star break, and we were talking, hey, what is the likelihood that Nico gets called up this year? And we talked about this even during last offseason, and we were all under the impression that if he were to have been called up, it would have been a September edition like this, but not out of a case of necessity, but one of the Cubs being games ahead in the division and one just to give the guy reps. The fact that he's called up in order for the Cubs to actually win games now is the most shocking aspect of this. And even more shocking because he hasn't been playing consistently this year due to a broken wrist, which kept him out for, I think, what, six or seven weeks? So for Nico to go through the farm system like this, not play that much this season, and have success in his first game, and be pegged as a Cubs starting shortstop on a daily basis, pending what happens to Addison Russell and his concussion protocol, is astounding. I think beyond our wildest dreams. Yeah, and you know, it's just one of those things that just, I mean, obviously Russell gets hit in the face, and that's bad, but you know, his overall numbers, they're just not very good, and I mean, he, you know, if you got bias goes down, which, I mean, I guess we were always afraid, you know, how many times did Baez, you know, where he'd slide in the bases and do whatever and act like he was badly hurt, you know, and you'd catch your breath, oh, my God. And then the one time it yeah. doesn't look like he's that badly hurt, he's got the broken thumb. But Yeah, I thought he hurt his neck on that slide, too. I mean, that was what uh, P.J. Manville, the Cubs uh, head trainer, that's what he was looking at at first. The, the thumb was never on my radar. Uh, it, it sucks to see. I know, um, you know, Ryan Tomer of Cubs Insider talked about the type of recovery and best case scenario, it sounds as if Javi's not going to be able to return until the NLCS. And of course, the NLCS seems like another wild dream at this point, given how the Cubs are playing. But man, it just sucks to lose Javi like that. Uh, I feel I feel as if even though Javi's been out, right, the numbers over the past seven to eight weeks for Javi have not been the best, and they've been able to go on brief stretches of winning games without Javi. Of course, losing him sucks, but if you input a guy who's just a league average, just a league average player, and maybe Nico can be that just defensively and with his speed on the base paths, having guys like Schwarber step up getting Contreras back in the lineup, having a healthy Anthony Rizzo. That that could be enough to propel the Cubs on a hot streak. Of course, getting Chris Bryant healthy as well would, would add fuel to that fire, but the Cubs 
at their best, when everyone is clicking, they are a deep team and able to withstand some of these injuries. The problem, as you and I know, and as all of your listeners know, is that that has not been the case this year, where most of these guys just have not clicked all at one time. But if there's ever a time to do it, <laughs> I mean, of course, it's right now. Yeah, well, let's, you know, that brings up a theme, because I've been thinking about this, of course, with the whole Chris Bryant situation. But it also applies to a hobby with the with the foot, with the heel. It's a, yeah. these guys playing with these nagging injuries, you know, throughout the year. That seems to be like they get these injuries. Even I mean, even a Daniel Descal, you know, Descalzo, which is like you know not a great player, but they get these injuries and they go, well, they got a minor nick or whatever, but they're going to keep playing, and their numbers just take a nosedive right. after these little injuries, and you do wonder like. What if they had just rested him at first? What if they were gone for two weeks when they first got injured? Right. I mean, that's 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 the problem that I feel as if most training staffs try to weigh in determining, okay, is this injury one that's going to be chronic or is this just the, the average, you know, nicks that players have during the season? And talking to guys who have played you know major league baseball they'll be the first to tell you and they've told me like hey we're healthy maybe maybe a hundred percent healthy 25 games out of the season that that's it and so i to a degree i understand why sometimes these players are trying to you know take a day off go back out there and withstand some of the pain and hope it goes away but at the same time, like ultimately, that is on the training staff. That's on the Cubs medical staff to ensure that these types of injuries don't become long-lasting chronic ones. And look, like I have no idea what goes into a Major League Baseball training staff, a medical staff. No idea, right? But what we do know is over the past two years, the Cubs have had a plethora of injuries that seemingly lasted because these guys played through them. And we can list off several from 2016. 2016, we had Jason Hayward and his wrist injury that only was released after the Cubs won the World Series. 2017, we had uh, Addison Russell with his shoulder. We've had Ben Zoberist with, what was that? I, I, I'm losing track of all these injuries, but he had an injury as well. He had a wrist, that he remember? Through. It was, remember it was the, a wrist yeah, injury, remember yes. he, would, he, would like, he couldn't bat right-handed at the end of the year, but he was still playing, right. and he was bunting right-handed because... <laughs> You had to be in the lineup, and you're like, what is going on here? Yeah, it's infuriating. And then, of course, you know, you look at last year as well, Chris Bryant's shoulder that that cost him basically his entire production in the second half. Uh, we have Javi Baez's heel this year. We have Yu Darvish last year, Brandon Morrow last year, and Pedro Strope this year, maybe. And so the list goes on and on and on and on. So the, the, proof, the proof is there, like... And I'm not saying, hey, like Cubs medical staff fire them, they all suck, but it does make you question like what is going on here? How come it feels as if the Cubs in particular, compared to other teams, they have more of these long lasting annoyed injuries? And I don't know the solution for it, but it certainly doesn't doesn't feel as if waiting a day or two and having them go out and play consistently through injuries has been the best way to go about uh, you know dealing with all of these yeah that's the thing too it's just i don't know you know players are going to want to play that's their you know i'll be fine i'm fine i'm fine that's what they you know because the thought is if you go out someone will replace you or you know what if i lose my playing time so they're always going to want to play 
So it is like the training staff or the management, frankly, that have to say, have to stop the players from hurting themselves. Because the players, they're gamers. They're not going to come out of the game. If they can play, they have to be badly hurt to come out of the game. So it is up to like the GM and the manager and everyone to say, nope, sorry, you're going on the injured list. Yeah, and the way that I've seen some of these medical staffs organized, like the first guy out of the dugout is always PJ Manville, right? Like he's the head trainer, but no, like no offense to PJ Manville, but I, I, if I if I were playing, right, like the first person whom I would want to see would be a physician, would be a medical doctor, not an athletic trainer. And I feel as if the primary form of prevention is passed through those trainers who, you know, simply put, are not qualified to be assessing these injuries. And if it's long, if it's a long-lasting injury, or whatever, then of course the physicians go out there and see them. But I've I've always been puzzled why the first guy out of the dugout has never been a physician, whereas in the NFL you have physicians all on the sidelines, of course, with the concussion protocol. But the guy who's first out on the NFL football field is a physician. So that that has always been, an, you know, kind of a curiosity thing for me. And I'm not saying you know, the cops, medical staff, they, they need physicians, blah blah blah. All these guys suck. Patient manual sucks. I'm not I'm not saying that. I'm just wondering how this has happened for three years now. That's the main issue I have. Yeah, it's just one of those things too. That's yeah. It's obviously like if you if we can see it from the outside, you would think Theo Epstein and Jed Hoyer and all those guys would say, look at all the the you know diminished numbers that these guys playing through injury. We got to come up with a new way to handle it. And you'd think they would, but I don't know. Maybe they do have you know I don't know what their assessment model is. Do they think if they can't hurt it any worse, let them keep playing? I just don't know. Yeah, I mean like it's it's this is always a difficult topic for me to to discuss just because like we're we're not qualified to be discussing medical issues like that's just how it works and not only that we're not in there on an everyday basis so to criticize to a great extent seems unfair given that we don't have all the information but again my 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 main problems are is the quantity of these long-lasting injuries and whether or not you know we are justified in our opinion, don't you feel as if the front office and the folks in the dugout, and especially the players, would want the optimal type of primary prevention or primary care or whatever it is? Because it doesn't seem like they've gotten that. And again, other teams around the league, the Dodgers are a prime example. Over the past several years, they've used that injured list especially for those pitchers, to their advantage. I mean, the entire, I feel like, 2018 season, they had Ross Dripling on like, the DL every other week, whatever it was. And the Cubs, like, they were not willing to do that. Like, even this year for several times, you know, Chris Bryant, for example, Javi Baez with the heel, the scalpel, Sean, for two months, like two months he was playing through an ankle injury. What, like, why did that happen? And I think those are fair questions to ask. Yeah, they, they really are. And it's just, I mean, I don't think we're going to change our, anyone's mind that this is going to be the way for the rest of the year, but I guess we'll see in the future if they change it. And, like, even right now as we speak, Chris Bryant gets the cortisone injection, and he's playing tonight, the next day. And you're still like, okay, I guess, but 
Couldn't you give him a couple more days off for the cortisone to settle in? But yeah, like, like again, you know, I I have no idea what the process is for that. It just sucks that we've gotten to a point where Chris Bryant has to take a cortisone shot because he's been playing through an injury for about two and a half months that has severely dampened his production. And then uh, if, if there's any optimism, at least for Chris Bryant's injury, uh, he did have like a little bit of a hot stretch in early August. So he took a Sunday game off in early August. His next 10 games, 50 plate appearances, he had a WOBA over 400. He blasted four home runs, batting over 300, and looked like the same guy that we've seen over the years. But then the knee barked up again, and now it's progressed to the point where we're talking about this one month later in a pennant race, and he's getting a cortisone shot. It just sucks to see. Yeah, it really does. So obviously now we'll kind of move on from the injury thing, but it's kind of in the same vein. It's just... What, what, what I was planning on talking about before uh, Nico grabbed all our attention, but it's just, I don't know, you, I, I wrote in the one preview for um, Cubs Insider, I called it a malaise, but I don't know what else. It's just like the Cubs just don't seem to be clicking. Like they'll have little windows where they do, but like, again, in these games against the Brewers, it's just, you just feel like when you watch it, you're just like, why are you doing this? Show some life, something. Yeah, like I I don't know if it's an effort thing per se, you know, with Joe Madden and some of his decisions. It's hard to reconcile the urgency statements to the media with with some instances of how he's managed his bullpen and lineup construction. The players themselves like like those guys are balling out on an everyday basis. Like they're playing through these injuries because they want to play and contribute to the team. So I, I, I think the efforts there, I never question their urgency. I mean, Nick Castellanos is slamming down his bats after home runs. Uh, you know, guys like Nico Horner are going off in his major league debut. Guys are loving that. Zobra's coming back, showing the enthusiasm. So these, these guys want it. It's just a matter of executing and performing and outperforming the opponents. And the Cubs just have not done that. For reasons that are mostly unknown to us, mostly unknown to the front office, or they wouldn't be happening, and I don't think we're going to get full explanations of why this long stretch of malaise, like you've talked about, has happened until the offseason. And whether that is an urgent thing, a preparation thing, who knows, right? But I, I just, I, I know the effort is there. I just don't think they're executing and they're performing the best that they can. Maybe that's a scouting issue. Maybe that's them not being able to implement adjustments that are necessary because the league has adjusted to these guys. Who knows, right? But efforts there, execution in my mind has not been there. Some of Joe Madden's decisions are amplifying some of those issues on the roster that need to be addressed. And it's a perfect storm. Yeah, and it's one of those things too that like, I agree with you. I think they are giving their full effort. I, I see some people are like they're not trying. I'm like, I don't think they're not trying. They are trying, but it's just and like let's I guess let's dig into this bad stuff because you you talked about it a little bit on your guys' podcast. Well, I almost want to say you talk about it all the time on your podcast, but it's that's <laughs> what I want to talk about all the time too. I mean, if the people out there read our uh, Cubs Insider di- direct messages on Twitter, they would see we 
pretty much talk about the lineups every day because they're just infuriating to us. But you know, with like with like, I mean, Almora, come on. I've been talking about Almora hitting leadoff for like three months. Can we stop with that? Yeah, it's that's the most puzzling aspect of Joe Madden's decisions lately is. A guy who was demoted to Iowa three weeks ago uh, because his offensive production was in the bottom 1% of Major League Baseball gets called back up, and then you put him at leadoff, and you do so in favor of Ian Happ, who, as he's been called up, has been basically a league average hitter. Like, why? What is the logic behind that? And I I know in that one instance where Lamar was leading off, there was a lefty on the mound. What was that, Gio Gonzalez that day? I think yes, it was. was, yes. Okay, so Gio Gonzalez, right? So Madden citing past history. But, you know, those are such small examples and instances in the total way that Almora has performed the entire season against the lefties. He, again, is in the bottom 1% of run production. And lefties are supposed to be his, you know, best suited handedness. He's been worse hitting against lefties this year than against righties. He's only created like five runs. That's it against left-handed pitching this year. That is absolutely nothing. It's, and he has a WRC plus, Sean, of like 35 against lefties. That is in, inexcusable to give the guy who, with those numbers, the most at bats in your lineup. That doesn't make sense to me. And so I hope going forward that we have to, or that rather we don't see these instances so we don't have to talk about them anymore because it's almost obvious. Like, don't give the guy who has the worst offensive numbers the most at-bats on your team in a lineup with a hot uh, hot Kyle Schwarber, with a hot Nick Castellanos. With Ben Zobris now back in the lineup, like what? What are we doing here? Yeah, and it's one of those things too. Would you just let's say that um, Almora did have decent numbers, but if you apply logic to this whole thing, Gio Gonzalez, the way you beat Gio Gonzalez is patient. You draw walks. He's very wild. He's got one of the highest walk rates in baseball. So you put on guys that work at bats and take pitches, and you put Albert Almora, notorious aggressive hitter won't take more than a pitch without swinging. And you have him against Gio Gonzalez, Well, the main way you beat him is by drawing walks and working the pitch count. It's just, it drives you nuts. Yeah, Madden's always been, which I liked, a combination of feel and analytics. And he's always been citing that. Like, he described his managerial style of, of that as dripping with analytics like he had a, he has a card in his back pocket he described that as tripping with <laughs> analytics and so i i feel as if sometimes he extrapolates too much from data that just isn't there like using al's history against gio gonzalez as proof to give him the most at bats in the lineup is probably a gross misinterpretation of that data. At the same time, maybe Joe is thinking, yeah, I like the way Al looks against Gio. I like the changes he's made since coming back from Iowa. I like the way he's been looking lately. I want to give him a shot there. That's a different argument. It's just a, now, now the question becomes, okay, is that the appropriate solution given the Cubs offensive what was right now? Do we want to experiment with that? Is that too much of a risk? And that was something that, that Corey and I were talking on the last podcast is it feels as if Joe 
the intentions are there. Like he knows he, he like he needs to be more urgent. Like he knows that. Like the entire team knows that. It's just the execution and the the process that leads to these decisions just are they're suboptimal. They seem a little bit too risky for my taste. Like a conservative approach would be okay, everyday basis, Castellanos, two or three, Zobris, leadoff, Ian Happ, maybe even leadoff right now, given that plate discipline, there's no other options. And you follow that very conservative trajectory of giving the guys who have been performing the best the most at bats. Madden just hasn't been doing that. He hasn't been doing that even with his bullpen management recently. Yeah, you've got that. Uh, I mean, the example that really sticks out recently was that Brewers game where, you know, you, you go with David Phelps against Yasmani Grandal in the eighth inning. First of all, Grandal is a, not as much power hitting right handed as opposed to left handed. So you probably go with a lefty against him. But anyway, the, he goes with David Phelps. Grandal crushes a home run. Then you bring in Derek Holland to face just Christian Yelich, throws four pitches in the dirt, never competitive pitch, walks him. Then they take out Holland with Eric Thames up to bat and put in Rowan Wick. And it's like, why didn't you just start the inning with Rowan Wick? It just drives me right. nuts. Yeah, I mean, that's that's a perfect example right there is like, why would you not go with your clear cut best reliever? And so Madden's response to that was, well, I like the matchup with David Phelps against Grundahl and I like Holland against lefty. And if we get past those two guys, then you have Rowan Wick or Brandon Kinsler for the last four outs if you need them. And that is what I'm saying, where the the process the intention is there. You get what Madden's attempting to do, but is that the best, most conservative option? No. The conservative way to go about doing this would be to treat those innings and those games like a playoff game, where Joe in the past has used, as we know, Wade Davis, a role this Chapman, multiple innings. You bring in starters. I'm not saying to do this now, but Madden's playoff managerial style would have never used David Phelps in that situation. You know he would have gone right away to one of his high leverage relievers. But there 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 have been times even in those playoffs where like he used John Lackey in a tenth inning against the Dodgers in game two of the NLCS to get and save Wade Davis later on in the game. So he has done this in the past, but mostly I feel as if Madden, his managerial style in the regular season is always one with fourth word thinking where he's trying to protect and use his guys that are his big eaters later in the game and have the ability to then use maybe those guys by saving them in the following game. So you yeah, extend yeah. your shelf and life or yeah, your bullpen that very, way. That's say. It's a very old school. Like you were saying, it's a very old school managerial approach. I mean, it's the, it's the, it's the Tony La Russa approach. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Tony La Russa is one of the founding fathers of the 7th, 8th, nine guys. Like, he's the one who implemented this. So, yeah, that is an old-school approach, and that's that's Madden's intention. It's just we saw what, what Kirk Council did in that Milwaukee series where he's using Josh Hader in the 8th inning. He's not wasting any time. Mm-hmm. Madden hasn't done that. You know, very rarely has he done that this year. And that instance against the Brewers in the 8th inning – would have been the time to use Rowan Wick. I know, like, of course, Yelich is going to hit righties 
better than lefties, but Yelich also hits lefties extremely well. And guess what? Derek Holland is just not the best pitcher. Yeah, I know the lefty-lefty splits. Yeah, he wanted nothing to do with Yelich. Not one of those right. was any of that pitches. They were all in the dirt. They weren't even close. Right. So I mean, you have the lefty-lefty matchup. Uh, you know, logic there is just does that logic hold in extreme situations when the guy you're facing Christian Yelich is the best hitter in the national league? Probably not. I mean, probably the best uh, solution there would be to throw your best reliever, which at the time was Rowan wick, but we waited and ended up being Rowan wick and Kinsler when the game was lost. And that should never happen in the pennant race. Mm-hmm. It's one of those things too. It's just, it's just something that I would think, you know, I don't want to throw dirt on the Brewers here, like or the other guys in the <laughs> oh, lineup. <please. laughs> but after two, three, four, their lineup is pure garbage right now. I mean, you got Hernan yeah. Perez, like Manny Pena. Who you got in the bottom of it? Orlando Arcia. Yeah, you right. use Wick against two, three, four because that is what's good on their team right now, and it just it it bugs me. Yeah, I mean, it's look, it, it bugs all of us. I think even Sahad of Sharma of The Athletic, he was writing about that series in particular and, and even series in the past where Madden's decisions are perplexing. They, they just are. And even though you understand the intention and you understand what Madden's trying to do, again, that is just a really risky proposition to try to hold on and not pitch your best guys until the eighth or ninth innings and doing so by pitching suboptimal guys against Christian Yelich, against Yasmani Grandal. When you lose the game off those two guys' arms, like that's that's good enough reason to never do that, like ever again. So hopefully we didn't we don't see him do that. I mean he said even today, uh, before Tuesday's game against the Padres that he's gonna be less tolerant with these bullpen guys. What that means, we'll find out. He's talked about urgency in the past, but some of the moves don't reflect that. So I think going forward, maybe we do see Rowan Wick pitching, you know, two innings. Maybe we do see Brandon Kinster get in there in the seventh inning or Wick in the seventh inning. And they utilize these guys in a fireman role rather than your typical seventh, eighth, ninth inning roles that we've seen for decades now. Mm-hmm. Well, that's at least what you got to hope for. So um, we'll move on into some more. I'm going to try to find some positive things to talk about because there's been a lot of negativity, but uh, we mentioned it a couple times, but, man, this Castellanos train just keeps rolling. I mean, yesterday, Monday, you know, he hit that massive home run against the Padres, but, I mean, how can you not keep this guy? Yeah, I mean, the attitude is contagious, too. He's going around there. He's got the chains rolling. He's got no undershirt, looking like a baseball fashion expert over there. And the 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 energy is contagious. Like, you see he and Rizzo do the, the arm smash thing. He and Schwarber do the same thing. They had the eating-type celebration with, with Rizzo. So I, I, love, I love the guy. I mean, there was a report today that he had a picnic, Sean, with his, with his girlfriend and kid in center field at Wrigley Field. He brought a pool in center field for his kid at Wrigley Field. That, that, that is insane. So you know he loves, absolutely loves what the Cubs have done for his family. I'm sure he loves Chicago. He's been talking about um, you know the fans at Wrigley Field never being out of it. You know he loves it. And I think at this point, I... I mean, I can't imagine the Cubs not bringing him back. We'll, we'll see, you know, these discussions for the offseason are going to be so 
exhaustive because there's so many issues at hand right now, but the type of market that's going to be available for Castellanos may not be as lucrative as it once was two, three years ago. I mean, we saw what happened to J.D. Martinez, for example, when he came off one of his best years in his career and only got, I mean, not only, but compared to what you expect, $150 million for five years. And he's going to opt out probably after this year. And in years past, you know, players who put up numbers like Castellanos in the second half or even like J.D. Martinez, who I just gave as an example, they get more than five years, more than $150 million. I mean, even Goldschmidt signed a $150 million extension, and he's been one of the best hitters over the past decade. You have to think Castellanos, his asking price and his market value right now, shouldn't prohibit the Cubs from giving him that extension while also giving the Cubs flexibility to go out and make other moves. Yeah, and you know, the one thing that makes you feel, I would think that Rendon, we get most of the attention, so maybe that might, you know, Maybe Castellanos would be more under the radar because, I mean, if Anthony Rendon doesn't get paid, then no one should get paid because that guy's great. Right. And with Rendon, like the Cubs are going to be connected to him probably, obviously. But the reason that his market might be deflated is due to his injury history. And this being his best year, it might give some front offices cause for concern. Like, hey, can we expect this going forward? And Castellanos, the advantage he has is that he's young. He's going to be 27. He's already 27 now. He'll be 28 next season, and he's going to be hitting free agency early than your expected guy around 30 or 31. So in that case, maybe Castellanos will get more money. But I, I think right now, conservative a conservative estimation for Castellanos is like mm, four to five years, 22, 26 million per year, maybe in, uh, you know some some club extensions after those four years. I think, and right now, if, if that's what it is, if, if Castellanos' asking price is four years, 22 million, how can you say no to that? Yeah, you, you really can. I mean, he's been basically, I, well, I should say Schwarber has also been very good. But, you know, he's been the driving force for the, since he's come to this team. So, yeah. Uh, right. You know, actually, since I mentioned it, Kyle Schwarber is looking pretty good after a pretty slow start, but he's been pretty good. Yeah, uh, he's been right on par with Castellanos' production. Uh, with Schwarber, I mean, this might be the adjustment he needed to make that he always needed to make to get to that next level. We talked about it in Cubs Insider as well, but he's changed his approach. He's going to the opposite field with, with authority more. What did we see in that home run on Monday night? An opposite field home run. And he's doing so with kind of this slight mechanical change, almost like what he used to do when he first was called up to the Cubs, where bat is kind of rested on his shoulder and he has more pre-pitch movement before he initiates the swing than that what we've seen early on in this year and the majority of 2017 and 2018. So Schwarber, in some sense, is going back, what I think, to what worked when he was first called up. And he's now he's incorporating philosophical shifts successfully by going to the opposite field. He's hitting above the shift to left field, to the opposite field, to center field, with consistency. And that's been the principal reason, I think, why he's having the success. Yeah, it really is. I mean, because if you think about it, he's got tremendous I mean, he basically flicked his wrist on that home run Monday, <laughs> and it went way I mean, out the of the juice, park. But- yeah, I mean, with the juice ball, I feel like you can just, you know, half swing with, with some of these pitches. And with Shoreburn is just crazy bat speed and bat control. 
you have to think if he keeps doing this and even in 2020 with this type of production like he's a 50 plus homer guy no 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 shot that he can with a full-time playing role where he would hit under 30 home runs i mean this guy has massive power potential massive walk potential and the issue he's had is just kind of in a pull heavy approach hitting into the shift and that's really dampened his production so if he continues to go to the opposite field we're going to get numbers that are going to be what you expected at schwarber's ceiling which is insane to think about right now yes it is so i gotta do one more negative thing and um, <laughs> our our friend Corey will of course not like to hear this but um you know you, i believe John in Lester. yes yes i believe in Lester <laughs> in big games you know he's got that but i mean he's getting to the point now his velocity keeps going down and he's made adjustments in the past that may have still an effective pitcher but you hate to say it, but he's almost getting to be like late career John Lackey down the stretch here. And I don't want to say that, but am I? Can you give me some hope here? Can he find it again, or is this might be who he is? I mean, if we look across Major League Baseball as a whole. FIP and ERA have both jumped half a point in the past three years. The average FIP this year is 4.5. Lester's FIP is 4.3. So he's still been better than a league average pitcher. And I know the expectations for John, they're always going to be high, probably abnormally high. He's 35 going on 36. But even this year, he's doing what he's done in years past. And that is not walking that many people, getting weak contact, working with his stuff, getting league average strikeouts. And in that sense, his peripherals look basically the same. But in this new juiced ball era, those fly balls that typically were outs are going over the fence. I I mean, John's going to be your fourth or fifth pitcher. That's just how it is. And Corey's the first one to say that as well. But am I comparing him to John Lackey right now? No, I'm not. Because his peripherals this year are in line with what we saw in 2018. 2017. The velocity is a little bit lower, but the amount of weak contact generated by those fastballs, the amount of ground balls are actually up this year than last year. The peripheral still suggests that John, at the very worst right now, can be like a league average pitcher. Now, down the stretch here, is he getting fatigued? Is he pitching differently than early on in the year? Maybe. And maybe that is a concern, but it's only been a few starts. You know, last week before the start that he had a poor start, he pitched six innings, no runs. And sometimes those bad outings get amplified and highlighted, justifiably so. But it's not as if John's going out there on a daily basis and getting shelled. I mean, 10 days ago, again, six innings, no runs. And I think if he keeps pitching with command, with a lot of weak contact, and with a Cubs defense that should be tightened up, I think there's a lot, a lot of possibility for John to still have success despite the stuff not being there. Yeah, you know, and like you said, it is like, you know, he's always gone with these fly balls, like especially last year I remember always thinking that when he pitched at Wrigley, the wind would be blowing in, and he'd pitch to these fly balls and it would work. But you do wonder with the juice balls, but you know, like you said, he's still doing okay. The last couple of months have not been as good as the start of the year. But he's still got something left. And you know when it gets to a big game, you still feel good with him on the mound. Yeah, I mean, I think John Lester in the pecking order of concerns is on the lower part of that list. I think there's way more concerns right now on this team. Correct Kimbrell's health, Javi Baez's health, Chris Bryant's health, and getting that back into the bullpen 
sorted out the the rest of the team as a whole you know it's it's going to be possibly good if they're all healthy but i think in terms of like john lester's worry right like should we be concerned about john lester's uh inability to pitch recently i I just think it's the lower on the pecking order i think if kimbrough comes back if zobers can play on almost everyday basis if chris can after this cortisone shot be successful if javi can come back (laughs) and the cubs are fortunate to be back in the playoffs you can see a scenario where it all clicks even if john lester is the same guy right now you go into a playoffs you go into the pennant stretch and you have four or five guys who are successful in the rotation that should that should be enough and i think with the way q has been pitching you darvish has been phenomenal and kyle Hendricks is the same guy that we've always usually seen i think we're, we're asking for maybe a little bit too much from john and something that just doesn't have to be there right now i think the cubs rotation is more than fine to be able to handle a few you know, bad outings from John Lester. Now we're in a pound of stretch and I get that we need John to be on his best performance every single day. I get that, but it doesn't matter when you have a back end of the bullpen. That's not healthy. It doesn't matter if Chris Bryant can't play every day. When Javi Baez is out, when Contreras can only play once every three days, those, those are the main issues and those get sorted out. That should trump any type of bad performances that Lester may go out there and, and, and pitch in. Yeah. So I'll finish out with this. Is we've got what twenty games left in the season? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But um, obviously, the Cubs road actually is pretty light. You've got three more games with the Padres, who can be dangerous, but also you know they're not really playing for anything. Then you've got um, what two series with the Pirates and two series with the Cardinals and one with the Reds in Chicago. So there's only one winning team in that stretch. So can we have any hope, or is it just like, I don't know with this team that it's going to do anything? This has been such a wacky season. I think you can only you know expect what they've been doing lately. Like What they've been doing lately is a team that's been league average, 500, one that's full of inconsistency. So to expect anything different later on this stretch is probably not realistic that being said we know the offensive ceiling with this group we know when the back end of the bullpen is healthy what that can look like and the cardinals have a tough schedule like right now they're getting wow arenado just crushed a home and i'm looking at the highlights right now they're losing colorado right now they have to play colorado the diamondbacks the cubs twice they have to play the nationals they have a tough schedule and two West Coast trips and mingled in the rest of those 20 games. The Cubs don't have that. And so you can see a scenario, best case, where the Cardinals start to fizzle out, get a little bit of fatigue in there, two West Coast trips, tough opponents, and the Cubs take advantage of that. That's more or less what Milwaukee did last year. They won the division. They were one game away from the World Series. And that was never on their radar of terms of expecting that early on in September. So yeah, I can see a scenario where the Cubs end up doing that. Am I expecting that? No. Realistically, I want to get the bullpen healthy, get Craig Kimbrell back there, and get to that wild card game if they don't win the division at full health so you can employ all your guys against Washington, get into the NLDS, and see what happens. Yep, that's probably a good strategy. And like you said, I mean, you, you just can't. I mean, how long have we been all writing articles and talking? This is it. This is the moment. They got a couple of wins strung together. 
they're going to click in, this is going to be it, and then, you know, like, they sweep the Mets, and you're like, yes, they swept the Mets. We didn't expect that. That's found money. We're going to go into these brewers things. We're going to bury those stupid brewers, finally, after all these years, and no. Fizzles out again. And then you go, well, screw this team. They're not going to do anything. I quit. And then they go and win a bunch of games, and you're like, right. well, maybe they're, and then they do it. It's like a freaking pendulum, man, and you don't you just don't know which way it's going to swing next. Yeah, I mean, it's frustrating. This is probably the most frustrating season that, you know, the Cubs have had in, in, in this decade, um, you know, realistically in their competitive window. So it, it's, it sucks. I think that's the best way to put it because, you know, the ramifications of 2020, 2021, 2022, because how they performed this year. Like we know Madden, unless he goes on some type of complete you know, huge winning streak, he's probably not going to be back next year. And what that means for other guys like Ian Happ and Almora, you know, some other youngsters, Schwarber, et cetera, what that means for their status as a long-term Cub, who knows? But a lot is riding on these next 20 games. If they go out there and they win 15 of the next 20, they change the narrative, they go through a playoff stretch, and then maybe that changes how the Cubs act in the offseason i think that's probably asking too much i think the the way the team has performed has given the front office enough justification to do whatever the hell they want to do in this offseason but i think what makes this losing stretch the worst is because the possibility of a shortened win window is there based on this performance and it sucks in the immediate now and it sucks in the long-term future but again they win 15 of the next 20. They flip the script, and maybe that changes how we're all thinking about this team in the offseason. Yep. Nico Horner wins the most improbable rookie of the year ever for a month. <laughs> yeah. Nico Horner, NLCS MVP. Sign me up for that. That's right. Well, I think we'll end on that note. Hopefully, we'll have some playoff baseball this year. We'll see. If not, I guess we'll have a long offseason to ruminate over everything that went wrong hope not <laughs> i hope not uh, thank you for coming on uh, brendan thanks sean always a pleasure oh, and i should remind everyone cubs related podcast you should listen to it it's good they occasionally shout me out so <laughs> if i say something yeah. interesting yeah we sure we try to give you know everyone their fair share of love on the podcast but yeah Corey and i record twice a week so you can always find us in addition to your podcast sean uh you can find us on spotify itunes wherever and uh you know you can find both you and i our work at cubs insider and twitter wherever you know you want to find us we're on every you know every platform that's right well again thank you for coming on brendan thank you sean as always i'm sth85 on twitter if you have a question for the podcast, just email me at holycowpod at gmail.com, holycowpod at gmail.com. Um, you can always send me messages on Twitter, too, and we will have another episode soon. Thank you for listening. <laughs>